Okay, today, new series we're starting, but we, you know, we're not going to start out with making a pass through Proverbs. So today's the fifth, Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. Be happy with the wife you married when you were young. She gives you joy as your fountain gives you water. She is as lovely and graceful as a deer. Let her love always make you happy. Let her love always hold you captive. That's a good one, huh? Woohoo! <laughs> so um, we, we will see. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 a little bit in a couple of minutes. But at this moment, all over the world, all over the world, there are hundreds of millions of people that are gathering in places like this and lifting up the name of Jesus, honoring the king and worshiping him. And it all started a long time ago, a long time ago, when a father decided he believed in his son. He literally believed in his son. And uh, Mark chapter 1 captures the very beginning of the public ministry of God's son, Jesus. Let's go there and just get get in there. Mark 1, starting in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Imagine this. He saw heaven being torn open. I have no idea what that looks like, but it should make a painting or something. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now to me, verse 11 that's coming up is one of the most emotional and power-packed scriptures that we have. And a voice came from heaven. This is God speaking to his son, Jesus. And God says this publicly in front of everybody that's present. He says, you are my son who I love. With you, I am well pleased. He very publicly says, hey, that one, that's my boy. See him? That's my boy. And um, when I think about those moments that must have some, I, I'm sure that must have been tattooed down into Jesus' heart somewhere, those, those words, the meaning of that moment. And at future times, in the next few years, especially towards the end of the next three years, Jesus was going to go through some times. And, and I just have to think that, um, you know, at the times that he was being tempted by the evil one, at the time that he was being accused of things, at the times that people were saying things about him and doing things to him, I can only imagine how he would have gone back to that moment and thinking about the Heavenly Father is saying, my boy, that's my boy. I'm so proud of him. And I think it's amazing to notice here what's going on. This isn't just some sort of an announcement. Hey, public ministry, new, under new management. You know, it's not something like that. This is, this is an amazing moment that God singles out and says, I'm so proud of you. And it's an interesting to note that it's what wasn't happening there. Um, it wasn't when he made an A in his first spelling test or scored his first soccer goal or when he made his first million dollars, all big important things. It was when he was being baptized, when he was being obedient to scripture, when he was doing something spiritual. God says, that's my boy, look at him. And he's basically publicly, publicly saying to Jesus, son, I believe in you. Those are powerful words. I believe in you. And today, I just have this in my soul. My, my, my boilers are up full pressure this morning as I come in here. I'm going to tell you something. I so, so believe that the Holy Spirit is going to affirm you today and in many ways that uh, you are not ready for or expecting. God's just going to show you how much he does believe in you. Immediately after the Father's affirmation of Jesus, 
Jesus goes off into the wilderness to fast and to pray, and the evil one starts tempting him. He starts, there's immediately an assault in three different ways. And, and, and I believe it's because when the Father affirms you, Satan immediately has a plan that he puts into motion. He wants to get you off track. Your enemy will try to talk you out of what God has said to you. But Jesus presses through all that. And after, the first, after these temptations are done, um, he goes out and he finds 12 of the most unlikely, unlikely people. And he says, hey, if you would be willing to leave what you know and leave what you're doing and follow me, we'll do life together. I'll teach you some things that you don't know. We'll totally change the world. And if you, you have to leave what you think is important, and I will teach you what is important. And that's what they did. They didn't take a class. They didn't do some sort of a, here's a book, here's the 18 points, here's your quiz. They just did life together. And he taught them as they went. And they asked him questions, and he responded, and he invested in them. And uh, after about three years, he was talking to the 11. They're down now from 12 to 11 because one of these guys has betrayed him. And it's a pretty emotional moment um, when you look at what's going on at about the time of the Last Supper. We just had communion, um, and Jesus introduced this ordinance to the church. And it's, he's gathered these guys together that he's invested all of this effort and time into. And it's kind of like his last staff meeting. It's the last one. And so he knows this. He knows where he's going. He, he realizes that he's got, he doesn't have a whole lot more times with these. These are not just his disciples. They're his friends now. They're, they've developed relationships. They've been eating together. And you know what happens when you go camping. You, you know, stuff breaks, stuff happens, and you overcome things together, and you get bonded, and all that. And he realizes that now this is it. Clock's running. And um, so I've got some time here. This is my opportunity. What am I going to do that's really important? And I think in what's a very, very emotional, power-packed time, he says some things to him. He says to them, I believe in you. Just like the father said to him, he says, I got to go away now. But if I go away, then I can send the Holy Spirit, and that's a better deal for you than if I stay. And then he says, now go into all the world, teaching what I've taught you, and um, you can change the world. I believe in you, Jesus is saying to these guys. And now here we are, a couple thousand years later, and counts are hard to know know the exact numbers, but between 2.1 and 2.2 billion people are alive on the earth today following Christ. Wow, that's amazing. It all started when a father said to his son, I believe in you. And I believe that that is one of the most important things that we can do. I want to talk to you today about um, your ability, your power to influence, about doing life together with each other. And uh, you know, we'll talk about some concepts like mentoring and investing in each other. And if I was to sum this all up in one sentence, I would say, okay, here Paul was was uh, talking to followers, and here, here's, this is from 1 Corinthians 11. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What Paul is saying is that, first off, is that Christ is our example. And he's basically saying to these people, you know, I'm, I've been walking a little bit longer than you. I've got a little bit more experience. And uh, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to pursue Jesus. And come on, you can come with me. So come on, if you want to do that, Come with me, and I'm going to tell you what I know, and you can follow my example as I follow the the example of Christ. So today, I want to talk to the generation 
of adults that um, are called, our, our sociologists call them the emerging generation. Those of, those of you who um, are coming along, and you're coming along with a purpose and to make a difference. That's what's said about your generation. They're called the emerging generation. Next week, I'm going to talk about how we can influence, we, the, the, the rest of us, can influence that next generation, and it'll be kind of a, a, an approach at parenting, although it's a much broader subject than parenting uh, and that involves the body of Christ, because today we believe a lie that our goal is to raise happy, independent, well-rounded kids. <laughs> wow, did he say that's not our goal? Yeah, that's kind of what I said. And this is a very typical, common definition of what people think parenting is all about. Happy, independent, well-rounded kids. But scripture tells us that we should raise kids that are scandalously Christ-centered. Wow. Greatest goal in life is not to raise someone who is the winning goal, makes the winning goal on the soccer team, although there's nothing wrong with that. And yet, if you look at how we do life, that is the goal that most of us, or many of us, at least our society says, here's what you do if you're a successful parent. It'll show up on the soccer field or as a valedictorian. And then um, there'll be a brief break in the series. And when we get back to it, we're going to talk about the role of the church at large in this process. And we'll talk about this very powerful relationship that's described in the New Testament between the Apostle Paul and a guy named Timothy, a younger man that he decided he was going to mentor and shape. We'll see how Paul and, and Timothy did life together, how he helped him, how he coached him how he uh, helped a guy named, named Timothy. And I'm going to try to convince you over this s series of weeks that every single one of you, every it doesn't matter your age, every single one of you needs a Paul in your life. You need someone who believes in you, and every single one of you needs to have Timothy, at least one in your life as well, someone that you can choose to believe in, because when you believe in them, you will release something supernatural. Well, we're going to develop that a little bit more. So I plan to convince you on that, and I'm pretty determined I'm going to convince you. So, <laughs> so okay. And, and this is really, really important to me. And I, for personal reasons, I, I, I would just say this. I'll take a minute or two on this. It won't take a long time. But I'm doing what I do today in no small part because somebody believed in me. I mean, a few, a handful of people invested in Terry, intentionally invested in Terry and changed my life and changed my trajectory. I was, I've been in the ministry a long time, 27, 28, I had a long time now, full-time ministry. And uh, early in my ministry, I came from a business background. I've talked about that a little bit. And I was successful there and got swept into this ministry position. And, uh, and I was bumping along and very effective at getting the job done. Very effective at getting the job done. But if you were to say, was I effective at being a pastor? The answer is no. I was failing at being a pastor. Great as a leader, administrator, accomplishing tasks, wonderful. Pastoring, not so much. Not so much. And I made a lot of mistakes. My heart wasn't, wasn't big enough. I was immature. And... Um, people would say things to me and were saying things to me, I was told, um, you don't have a shepherd's heart. You'll never be a pastor. And I had people accusing me of things I didn't do, nefarious things. I mean, bad stuff. And I had people attacking my integrity. It was, it was hard. And I began to believe that God did not want a failure like me serving in his church. 
It was a hard, hard time. But there was this man of God. Many of you know him, um, Pastor Burt Smith, who, you know, he just started doing this. He said, hey, get in the car and come with me to the store. Okay. I got stuff to do. I'm busy, but you're my boss, so I'm going to go with you to the store. I can't tell you how many times I went to the, lawn, the dry cleaner with him or, you know, to the store. I mean, sometimes we, we even went one time to the pawn shop. Don't know why we went there, but I got some cool tools. Um, <laughs> and um, we just talked about stuff. We just talked about stuff. And I'd ask a lot of questions, you know. I mean, I remember one time asking the question, why is it that every time we go to the mall, there is a parking spot for you at the front of the row, right by the door. Every time we'd, we'd go in a big crowded, I mean, it was creepy. It was weird, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and he would always snicker and chuckle and say, oh, I got to deal with God. And I'm, you know, I know he was pulling my leg, but I believed it. Because we didn't matter. There was a spot right in the front. You ever experienced that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. But we'd go places, we'd do things, and I'd just ask him questions. And I asked questions like crazy. And he answered my questions. He, he would take me places. I remember him taking me. One day, he says, get in the car. We're going to the hospital. Well, why? Well, we're going to visit somebody. And I've just got, okay. And I'm thinking, this is scary. Hospital visitation? You know, okay, I'm with him. I hope he doesn't make me do it because I don't know what to do. I mean, I was afraid to go visit somebody in the hospital as a pastor because I assumed if you show up in the hospital room, they expect you to heal them. They expect you to fix their issues. <laughs> fix me. Wow. You, you follow me? I mean, I think a lot of people don't go to the hospital and do visitation because they're afraid that there's an expectation that they don't believe they can meet. And I was afraid. And I went with him and, and we went in and he sat and chit-chatted and spoke the truth in love, prayed, and we left. And I thought, what just happened? These people have been ministered to. They're still in the hospital. What's the deal? And I learned that that's not what hospital visitation is all about. You don't have to. I mean, it's, I learned. We went to the drag races together. I should be at the drag races right this minute because there's a drag race in Seattle, but I'm not. I'm here. I'm joking, okay? I just realized a couple of days ago, I'm kind of joking, a little bit joking, honey. <laughs> Okay, just in case you don't know, I'm a little bit nuts about cars, especially race cars, and there's a huge NHRA drag race that's up at Seattle today, this weekend, and I've been to it every year for probably 25 years in a row, and I, I forgot it this year. I literally forgot the drag races until I was going home from here one night last, this last week. It was like Tuesday night, and I'm going north about 25, uh, 20, or 8.30 at night, and I realized, you know, my little gas light's on. So I pull into Pilot, and I go into the gas station, and out pulls this great big tractor trailer for um, Scott Kalita's race team. And I'm the races are this weekend, but that's completely nothing to do. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, learned, I, I, I learned from this guy oh, so much. He'd been walking down the road longer than me. He was a successful man of God. He really loved God. And I learned how to... I'm still learning how to, but I learned and I watched up close this man um, be authentic and still hold to the word of God, tell people the truth, 
and still it would be full of love. I mean, I, I watched, I learned, and I, and I got sent down a pathway that was so healthy for me. And um, he taught me how to love people in behalf of Christ. But here's the big deal. Remember back when I told you I, I was saying to myself, I don't believe God wants a failure like me working in a church. Instead of throwing me away, he invested in me. I'm here doing what I do today because other people believed in me. I could name others. There are people sitting in this room. And I remember, you know, whining at times saying, you know, they're saying this about me and they believe this about me and it's not true. And my heart was hurting. And he said to me, you know, you don't have to worry about that because they've said the same things about me before too. In fact, they said the same things about Jesus, but he said, I believe in you. And better than that, God believes in you. And when he said those words to me, it made me want to be a better man. It made me want to be a better father, a better son, a better leader, a better pastor. It released something in me, and that is the big, one of the biggest reasons was because somebody believed in me. Somebody believed in me. And I've watched you people. I've watched you. And I want you to know how much I believe in you. And I'm going to talk today a little bit to this next generation, and I'm going to be fairly transparent and honest. I, I'm an honest guy, but I'm going to try and say some things very directly that you might feel put upon a little bit. I don't mean to um, put upon, but I'm, I'm going to try as best as I can give you a transparent viewpoint. Um, you might say, well, who are you talking to? There's really no hard lines, but I want to say the next generation of young adults, you know, anywhere from upper teens to the very early 30s, maybe. Um, but don't get stuck on the age limit here. I mean, this, this, hear the spirit of this from, from what I have to say. And I do want to say, too, that what I'm going to share with you is my opinion. I've done a lot of research and all that kind of stuff, so this is just an opinion. You can disagree with this if you want. It's perfectly okay. You'll be wrong, but... <laughs> But I want to share what I believe are the three greatest temptations that this generation faces. And uh, I'll develop that a little bit. So let's just get started. These three. The first one is this. To this generation, I, I, I believe that you are tempted to feel entitled. In fact, sociologists have labeled you the entitled generation. Now, it's not your fault. I, don't, I want you right off to know I'm not, I'm not accusing you. I want you to know it's not your fault. Your, your parents... Typically, you were raised, and your parents were both had to work. They were very busy, and so an awful lot of what they did to solve that dilemma was they would give you things. They would buy you things. If you wanted something, they tried to get it for you, and they protected you. Your generation was raised with a helmet. If you were going to walk down the sidewalk, you had a helmet. I mean, my generation, they go, we're going to the store, get in the back of the truck, and hold on. <laughs> Anybody here ever ride in the back of a pickup truck? It's cool. It's fun, isn't it? I mean, I understand dogs now when they stick their head out the window. <laughs> this generation doesn't understand a dog. <laughs> and here's another thing. You never lost at anything. Okay, here's what I mean by that. I mean, when I grew up, you actually had to win to get the trophy. Now, you just show up. Oh, Johnny, you came in last place, but you're a sure a winner. We're all winners. Okay, wow, that was really... That was really bad, Terry. I mean, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember trying out for sports and my name wasn't on the list. They would cut people. 
<laughs> okay, and now they have you know no cut sports, and I I get that too. But um, so I believe that this generation has been a little bit programmed and built into having an entitlement mindset, and now today we have you know you hear these stories of a 12-year-old who feels abused because their parents got them the iPhone 4 instead of the iPhone 4S. <laughs> and the problem also is that we have people who are 25 who believe that they are entitled to live at the same standard of living as their parents who are 55. And they believe it so much that, that as they get that opportunity, they'll go into dangerous debt to get... Um, the things, and it's the entitlement generation. And here's where this gets, generation, this, this, this gets dangerous. Most of this generation lives a pretty good life, but they feel like they deserve it. They feel like they deserve it. And then when things go wrong, they get mad at God because he didn't give them what they deserve, which is a good life. So when things are going good, God gets no glory, but when things don't go well, God gets the blame. And that's a dangerous theological place to be. It's just really a dangerous place. And so you just need to know this is typical. It's a typical temptation for your generation, but you can overcome it. You can overcome it. Second temptation, and this is a pretty major deal. You're tempted to define truth as you see it. Um, You know, most people in this emerging generation have been taught that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so it's real common to believe if it feels good and I, if it makes me feel better than, and happy, then it must be true, and that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And the problem is that it allows people to believe in God but to live as if he doesn't exist. And so we have this generation that can say, you know, I, I believe in God, but I can still do whatever I want. And um, things like, it's not sin if it makes me happy. God wants me to feel good. It should be okay. The problem is this, that sin feels good for a while, but then it leads to death. It's kind of like, you know, it's like a sneeze. It feels really good coming out, but then there's this slime. <laughs> My mother didn't raise me that way, did she? I'm sorry, Mom. I, I chose to edit and say slime instead of snot because I didn't think you'd like me to say the word. <laughs> Have you ever heard that word before? No. No, you don't know what that word is. That's good. Okay. So the generation is tempted to do what feels good because they believe there's no absolute truth. But listen, truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14. And I want to invite a generation to get to know the person who is the truth, because if you reject that, then you are in for a tough, bad time. Third temptation is that you are tempted to postpone adulthood. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to say you've been overly coddled your whole life, but you've, you know, you've had all this stuff, this entitlement stuff's going on. And so it's easy to think, I'll become an adult later. I'll become an adult later. There's a guy named Tim, Dr. Tim Elmore, um, he wrote this book called The IY Generation, like iPhone. It's a small, small I, big Y. Y is the generation I'm talking about. They're called the Y generation. It's the letter. I don't know. Anyway, he did this survey, and the answer to this question I'm going to share with you, I think will shock you. He asked this question, when do you become an adult? 
Okay, nobody answer out loud. What are you thinking? When do you become an adult? I think when you ask the emerging generation, you'll get typical answers. And the answers will shock you. Here's what you won't hear is the average answer. You won't hear it's when you get old enough to drive. When you graduate from high school, you won't hear it's when you graduate from college. You won't hear it's when you get old enough to vote. You won't hear it's when you get old enough to buy a beer. You won't hear it's when your first job, or you won't hear it's, you even won't hear it's when I get married. You'll hear the most common answer is when do I become an adult is when I have my first child. When I have my first child, that's the most common answer. When do you become an adult to this generation? When I have my first child. I think that probably is the answer for some when the question is, when are you forced to become an adult? <laughs> Children will, will grow you up fairly quickly. At least they, they, they have that effect. And since people are postponing getting married until they get older, and they're also postponing having children until they get a little older, we have people in their, all the way from their late teens up into their late 20s, even early 30s, who still feel like a child or feel like a kid. They want the benefits of an adult without all of the sacrifices, and it can be kind of dangerous. So in my opinion, you have this variety in a generation thinking, well, I'm only 16 and I don't need a job, or I'm 18 and mom and dad will pay all my bills, or I'm 25 and mom and dad still pay my car insurance. And they start thinking because real life starts later. I'm 28 and I'm not married yet, but that's okay because real life starts later. I'm in a job, but it's not really the job that I want. And that's okay because real life starts later. And the truth is, real life starts right now. It's going on. And I believe significant numbers of this generation are being robbed of making a significant contribution. And by the way, God calls us to be making a contribution to the kingdom because they believe real life starts later. And that's a lie. Real life starting, it's going on right this minute. So those are, in my opinion, the greatest temptations that this generation um, struggles with. And now I want to talk about what I believe is their greatest strength. And this one strength, empowered by the Spirit of God, can override, overrule, overcome, overpower all of the temptations and uh, transform this generation into the most strategic generation that's ever lived. Um, And you'll understand why in a minute. So I'm talking to people who are roughly under 30. You are the most cause-driven and mission-minded generation in modern history. Cause-driven and mission-minded. Here's, you know, it's, 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 you are. You are. It's something about you that's different. Now, my generation you know, a little more selfish. We didn't care so much about other countries and we didn't care so much about disease and poverty. And, but you do. And I believe this is a gift. You're a gift to the, the world. I think this is a strategic move on the Lord's part. There's something in you that says, I've got to make a difference. And I mean, when, I'm, when I relate to this generation, I can feel it in them. There's, there's a cause. You want to cause, you, you, you have, a, things bother you. Here's some examples. You learn about a culture, that largely doesn't know Christ. So you apply yourself and you learn that language so that you can share the gospel in that language. I know kids, several that have done that. Kids, I call them kids. I know several that have done that. I've watched them say, I, but those people over there, never been there, but I, 
They don't know the Lord until so they learn the language. Or you and your wife, or you and your husband, depending on who you are, decide to sell everything and head off for the mission field. I know many couples, young couples, that have just said, I've got to get someplace. These people down there need the gospel. They need people to love on them. They need people, they need Pauls there. And although I'm young, I can be a Paul to these people. Or, I mean, I mean, an adventure when I was first getting married was we had friends who their adventure was to buy five acres off of Sargent Road, cut down the trees, and build a log house out of the trees. That was their adventure. Your generation's adventure is to head off onto a mission field. It's, it's amazing. Or they can be smaller. You hear about a friend of a friend who has cancer. You don't even know the person. And so you cut your hair off and you give it to what's it called? It's called locks of love. I heard about two different people in the last week and a half. Locks of love. People who have beautiful long hair and they say, okay, I'm cutting it off. And they give it to this organization and they make a wig and they give it to some little girl who's on chemotherapy. You think that way. I never even considered the fact that there were little girls on chemotherapy that needed to be loved. I mean, my generation didn't think about that the way yours does. Because you've got to do something about it. Um, you're cause-driven and mission-minded. And the problem is, Satan is trying to talk you out of living for your cause today by telling you that real life starts later. So I have this verse for you. Paul was, you know, mentoring and spending a lot of time with this, guy, this young man named Timothy, and he said this. He said, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He repeatedly affirmed Timothy, telling him, there's more in you. There's more in you. And I want to say that to this generation. There's more in you. There's more in you. You need to believe that. Paul, Paul's talking and he says to his son in the faith, and I love the language here, son in the faith. What a wonderful picture that is, um, especially because in many ways we have a fatherless, almost fatherless generation being raised. Um, sometimes the father is literally gone, but many times the father's here, but he's so busy that he's just not here. And so here he says to this young man, and he's his son in the faith, um, 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Don't let anybody talk you out of what you're doing for God just only because you're young. Today is your ministry. But set an example for the believers, for all believers, not just those that are young. All believers. Set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. And I want to say to you today that many of you are believing a lie that you're up to bat next, that you're on deck, that you're the church of tomorrow. And I want to say that, no, you are the church of today. I'm not trying to whoop you up either. I'm telling you, you need to be the church of today. Now, I'm looking across this room, and I see all kinds of people that I'm talking to, and you're already way involved, and that's really good. And this is not a recruitment. I'm not trying to recruit you for a ministry. I'm trying to release something real and true in your generation, actually in the whole church. Don't let anybody talk you out of that, that just because you're 18 or 25 or 32, don't let anybody talk you out of what the Lord is calling you to. You have to stop thinking that this is mom and dad's church. This is your church, and you have to believe that. I tried to impart this kind of thinking to my kids. 
I mean, it was common for us when our kids were, you know, preteen even, we would say, hey, we're going to pray about something as a family. Here's, here's a description. And I said, you listen to the Holy Spirit. We're going to be quiet for a couple of minutes, and then we'll pray. You lead the prayer. But the Holy Spirit's going to put some things on your heart, and you'll know what to pray for. And they go, okay. And I'm telling you, in two or three minutes, we were praying for things that I hadn't thought of that were profound and powerful, coming out of the mouths of 10-year-olds. They would lead. You know, here I am, this guy who's this executive pastor of this big, huge, multi-thousand church, and I'm being led by 10-year-olds. It's in them. It's in you. You know, you can be a new member of a football team, and you can influence your coach. You can be a student in a school. You can be a sophomore in high school, or you can be a sophomore in college, or you can be taking a night class, and you can influence your instructor or your teacher. You can be a 22-year-old, and maybe your parents are casual Christians, you know, because there's a generation of people my age who grew up in church but don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They grew up in church. They know the things of God, but they don't know the power therein. And when you experience this power, you'll be able to minister to your parents. You'll be able to minister to those younger, those that are older. God can use you. Don't let anybody look down on you because of your age. Our, here's an example of it going on in this church. Our women's retreat's coming up. And um, this year, you're going to experience, ladies, um, I, I, I really believe in what's going on there, is heaven-directed. It's powerful and it's heaven-directed. But you're going to experience headship, some leadership of some younger leaders. Some younger leaders. Why? Well, the reason why is because I've taken time with some of these younger leaders over the last year, a year, meetings, conversations, repeatedly. And I've listened. And these people know the Word of God. And they have listened to the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they have apprehended something of the vision of the Lord for what He wants to do with His daughters. And it's powerful. I said to one of these leaders who's going to teach in some of the sessions, now listen, you're younger probably than most of the people that will show up. You've heard from the Lord. Don't let anyone despise your youth. Don't let anybody despise your youth. This is the power of the Lord. The power of the Lord. Don't let anybody despise that. Now, I'm going to say something which I think spiritually may be the most important thing I say today for a variety of reasons. So I need you to hear this because Proverbs um, 18 tells us that the tongue holds the power of life and death. Okay? So I want to say these things in a declarative uh, way from my office of pastor. I don't want to overplay that so forth. I just, I just, I, this is a very intentional thing that I want to say to you. And by way of where this church is headed, our church will not despise our youth. We will not. We believe in them and we will tell them that. So I want to say to this generation, those that are present and for those who are not, and maybe we'll hear this on tape or maybe they'll share it with you, I believe in you. I believe in you. God believes in you. And we want you to know, this generation, that we believe in you. If you see, if you come to church and you see a 13-year-old up here somewhere on the worship team, do not conclude that, oh, they don't have enough adults, so they have to go after children to lead and worship. That would be so off target. So off target. 
And I'd say that because the Lord is raising up people to participate here. And some of them barely get into their teens before they're in front of you. And the Lord has put an anointing on them and a gift on them, and they're called. And I am grateful to see young people say, God, you believe in me? Okay. And they'll come up and they'll grab a guitar or a microphone or a keyboard, and they'll do something to serve him, and they're younger than the average bear. We believe in them. I want to be led by people who have heard from the Lord and they're willing and submitted. I trust that. I trust that. So if there are people here that fall into the categories I've talked about and if you feel like your toes have been a little stepped on because I said you were entitled or you were coddled or you're tempted not to grow up, please forgive me if that... But I want you to know that you're the church of today. So I just want to say to you, to this generation, I believe in you. I want you to rise up. Rise up. I believe in you. There is a place. The answer is yes. You do what the Lord calls you to do. Do it. And don't take no. Don't let anybody despise your youth. He planted you at this time in history on purpose. He gave you spiritual gifts. He gave you, and the spirit that gave you those gifts was the exact same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Don't you dare put off serving the Lord. And uh, I, I know there's objections. There's there things like, well, yeah, but I've really messed up. You know, you don't know what I've been doing. My answer to that is just get over it. Let the blood of Jesus completely wash that. Move on and get started. Or your parents might say, yeah, yeah, tell my kids. You go, Terry. No, okay, I am. But listen, you invest in your children. You believe in your kids. You tell them that. If we get to the end of the series and you're not somehow connected and trying to find the Timothy that you can believe in, there's a risk that you haven't done that after this series. There's a risk that you're not doing it because maybe your heart's become a little calcified. And that wouldn't be good. So don't let your heart go there, okay? I'm talking to the, the, uh, the rest of the generations now. It's, it's something that we need to be doing as a group because the body of Christ is about relationships. It's about doing life together. Mentoring is not a formal process where you do, you know, item number three in the book says, now we do this. If, if, if Paul was with Timothy today, they'd probably be meeting at Starbucks. Most of you drink coffee. Take somebody out for a cup of coffee and just spend a little bit of life with them. I mean, regardless of what my generation says, it's okay to text, right? It's really okay. And I actually text quite a lot with people. It's, it's, it's not my default form of communication, although it's growing on me. But for this generation I'm talking about, it's a primary form of communication. It's a chance to make a connection that they otherwise wouldn't make. And they connect, and that's important to them. And it's important to me. So when somebody texts me, I think, this is important. I'm going to take the time to do this. And it doesn't mean that because they're not in my face that they don't care about me and I'm not important to them. That's not their message. In fact, when they text you, the message is different. They're texting you because it is important to them to connect with you. So I think Paul would have had an iPhone and a text message. You don't need to all go out and get a text message right now, but I'm saying, you know, this is not a numbers by the book kind of a deal. And to, the, to, the, to, our, to my generation and the ones right before and after, every one of us still needs a Paul. I really believe that. And every one of us needs a Timothy, someone that we can believe in 
and release that. If you're a Christian businessman or businesswoman, you need to find five young people and choose to invest time in them and teach them how to stand up for Christ in their, in their, in their environment, how to build, a, build a, a wealth that they can use to help fuel the kingdom financially, that, that they should be able to stand on their own and stand for Christ in whatever environment they find themselves, whether it's in their own private business or at Rotary or wherever they happen to be. That they, they need to be taught how to be Christians in the world that they're headed into. And I know we're busy. You might be able to say, well, I really just don't have the time for this. I'm telling you, this is so important. We have to make time because we could lose a generation. We could lose a generation. I believe this too. This is easy for me to say because it'll be tough for you to disprove it. But if you feel like you don't have the time, but you're willing to ask the Lord, Lord, okay, this sounded good when he was up there preaching it, but I'm busy. Help me know what to do. I believe you will experience the Lord saying, yes. I'll help you figure out the time thing and the Lord will open doors for you to do this. If you're willing to be used by the Lord to be a Paul, the Lord will make a way for you. He will. He will. And here's why that's a big deal. It means he trusts you enough to trust you with his sons and his daughters. And that's a really, really big deal. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the life, the vitality, the energy, the resourcefulness, the heart of the generation I've been talking to today. God, we need them. We need them. I need them. I need them so that my own heart will not become calcified, Lord. I need them, Lord, because your word tells me that I do. Lord, I pray that you would, that I can't convince anybody about this, but Lord, you can. So teach us, O oh Lord, to, to, to disciple, to build and believe in the people who come behind us, Lord, all for your glory and all for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.